At the time David Stevens was approached by law enforcement in 1993 about his possible involvement in the Barbara Robellan homicide, after his buddy James West dropped a dime on him, Stevens knew there was another. And maybe that's why in his interview, West seemed to indicate that Stevens had mentioned there was another. At the time that final 2012 review of the Robellan case was being done, there was another cold case in another county that had also been investigated for years, just as diligently, by other investigators. Neither of them knew what the other was looking at, and neither of them knew that the other was looking into the same person. Good afternoon, everyone. 30 years ago, on July 31st, 1988, a homicide occurred in the city of Sarasota at the Booker High School campus. The victim was a 23-year-old young woman, Judith Elaine Darty. Her sister is here with me now. I just had a nice conversation, learned that uh, she was very close to her sister. She was a wonderful person who was very close to, to Judith's children. She'll explain a little bit about that, and uh, this makes it so much more personal uh, to share with you. The original investigation was conducted by um, two retired detectives who we actually have here, uh, Larry Kimball and Bob Korch. And the current investigator is Detective Tony DeFrancisco, who has worked diligently and has worked so hard. And I'm really proud of his efforts as well as the efforts of the other team members in the Criminal Investigation Division. I'm really proud to introduce Detective DeFrancisco, who's going to speak to you about this case and the efforts that he's made to bring some closure, some justice. Uh, to a family who has been grieving and praying and hoping to be able to come to a solution. And uh, at this point, I would ask uh, Detective DeFrancisco to please come forward and share with you what the investigations revealed. Good afternoon. Detective Anthony DeFrancisco. I'm a detective with this agency. I'm in my 23rd year as a police officer and my 17th year as a detective. We're here to talk about Judith Elaine Daughtery. On July 31st, 1988, approximately 10.30, a jogger discovered the victim's body in the field by Booker High School, which was at 3201 North Orange Avenue. The victim was lying on the ground next to her car. Judith was the victim of an extremely violent homicide, being beaten and then strangled to death. Judith was also sexually battered. The original detectives in this case conducted an extensive investigation but did not solve the case at that time. I began investigating this case several years ago and in 2009 we sent crime scene evidence to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Laboratory to be tested and a DNA analysis conducted. The results of this analysis revealed that male DNA was obtained from the victim's body. This DNA was entered into CODIS, which is the combined DNA index system, which revealed a match to the suspect, David L. Stevens, date of birth 12-20-1955. 
David Stevens at the time was already incarcerated in the DeSoto Annex prison on a 70-year sentence. I later contacted David Stevens at the prison where I conducted an interview and obtained a current sample of his DNA. This was done in order to do a direct one-on-one -on -one comparison with the DNA that had been located at the crime scene on the victim's body. The DNA match was irrefutable, very strong. It was also, the DNA match was corroborated by other crime scene physical evidence linking Stevens to the murder. Let's talk for a moment about Judith. At the time of her death, Judas was a 23-year-old 23 23-year-old young, uh, young woman who was very free spirit, very kind, very gentle. According to her family, she loved to be with her family. She loved ice skating, she loved bowling, and she loved her little dog, her little Shizu called Jin Lee. Judith's daughter did not deserve this to happen to her. The suspect in this state, in this case, David Larray Stevens, actually lived across the street from Booker High School at 3206 Goodrich, right across the street from the crime scene. Mr. Stevens has eight felony convictions, which would include armed burglary with battery sexual assault with a deadly weapon, loitering and prowling, sale of cocaine, possession of cocaine, grand theft, and that does not include the charges that we placed upon him yesterday, which is homicide and sexual battery. He is currently at the DeSoto Annex Prison and has been there since August 15, 1989. He is there because he committed an armed burglary with an armed sexual battery. Approximately six to seven months after this murder that we have been investigating, he committed this other crime uh, just over the city line in the county. This was reference to the sheriff's office case number 8912027. This occurred on February 13, 1989. Mr. Stevens at that time in the early morning hours, broke into a home through the bedroom window with a nine-inch knife and being masked. He sexually assaulted the victim in that case at night point while her children slept in the next room. Unfortunately for him, that during this crime, he left the knife behind, which had his latent fingerprint, and they were able to identify him quickly. And now, here it is almost 30 years later, he's still in prison for that crime, but was scheduled to get out within the next two to two and a half years. Judith Doherty being beaten, strangled, and sexually battered in no way describes the vicious assault that she endured. Because law enforcement never released the specific details of this crime, I will not either. I only learned of the heinousness of the crime by getting a hold of the court records. 
and even then those records were redacted. There was a concerted effort to keep some of those details from the public, to protect the privacy of the woman who could no longer speak for herself and perhaps spare her family more trauma. I will read the prosecutor's opening statements, however, skipping the first paragraph that details exactly how they found her, and only say that the way her body was left in that field was specifically done to demean her and shock any onlookers that would find her. There is no other way to take the actions of the perpetrator than that. Here, in part, is that opening statement. July 31st, 1988. Here in Sarasota. A woman is found in a field by Booker High School. She was beaten. She was strangled. She was raped. She was murdered. And that is how she spent the last few moments on this earth. She's found in that field. And as I said, you heard me correctly. This case happened in 1988. So this is what we refer to as a cold case, where the trail went cold. There were no leads. There were no suspects. Nothing like that. And I'm going to set the stage for you real quick. And to do that, I have to take you back to 1988. Specifically, I have to take you back to July 30th of 1988. She lived with her boyfriend at the time. She left her house around 10.30 that morning, and she went to work. She got off work around probably close to 5 p.m., and she had plans to meet up with her boyfriend that night, but things didn't work out. And so she left work and she went to the Sarasota Square Mall where she went shopping for some shoes at an old store known as Baker's. She got some shoes, she went home, she changed, she got ready for the night, and then she went out. She went to Venice to a bar and she stayed there for a couple hours, past midnight. And then she got in her car and she drove down to the Newton area, Newton in Sarasota, she went to look for some drugs. And that is the last time that we know what happened to her. Because fast forward to the next morning at 10.30, and she's found in that field, as I just described. Members of the Sarasota Police Department at that time, back in 1988, they responded to that crime scene, and they went and they took photographs. They took video. They canvassed the area. They looked for any leads any suspect that they possibly could. They went and talked to neighbors. They tried to piece together her evening. Her body was transported to the Sarasota Memorial Hospital where an autopsy was performed. As is routine with an autopsy, even for today, her fingernails were clipped, both her right and her left side. And those fingernails were preserved and they were put in an evidence bag with the hopes that one day science and technology may have advanced enough to be able to analyze whether there was someone else's DNA under those fingernails. So detectives back in 1988, they did everything they could. They tried to track down any leads, they canvassed the area, they took her clothing, they even tried to get the FBI involved. But unfortunately, when you don't have cell phones on every person, you don't have video surveillance around every corner, that's how a cold case begins. And for about 20 years, that case sat unsolved until about 2009 when Detective Anthony DeFrancisco with the Sarasota Police Department was assigned to the case to look over and see if he could generate any new leads, any new information on this unsolved homicide. 
One of the things that he did was he talked to the crime scene department and they figured out with advances in technology and science, specifically in DNA, they may be able to submit those fingernail clippings to see if perhaps someone else's DNA is under there. So they get that approved and they do just that. They take the fingernail clippings that were taken in 1988, still there, kept under lock and key at the Sarasota Police Department, and they submit them to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement for testing. About three weeks later, a report is generated. David L. Stevens, the defendant in this case. With that report, Detective DeFrancisco then goes about getting what's called a buckle swab, and that's a swab of the inside of someone's mouth, and that contains a known sample of their DNA. FDLE compares that sample with a sample generated from underneath her fingernails. Now, Detective DeFrancisco has very solid information. He then takes fingerprints collected back in 1988 from the exterior window of the passenger door of her car. You see, when she was found, she was found laying right next to her car. Her car was abandoned in a field, and that's her right there, just as I described. And in the back is her vehicle. And they analyzed those fingerprints that were found on that vehicle right next to her body, and those fingerprints came back to David Stevens. Detective DeFrancisco then goes about trying to see if Mr. Stevens was in the area around the time of the crime, if he lived in Sarasota, anything like that. And lo and behold, he finds this. The crime scene, that's right here on this image. And this is Booker High School. And the defendant, he lives less than a half of a mile from the crime scene. You're going to hear an interview from the defendant. You're going to hear what he says. Pay attention to where he says he resided. Pay attention to him say he's never met Judith. He doesn't know her. Pay attention when he says there's no reason his DNA would be under her fingernails back in 1988. What is significant is also that the DNA is not a mixture of three or four people. You're going to hear that it's two, the victim in this case, and Mr. Stevens. So I'm going to ask you, members of the jury, throughout this trial, that you bring something with you each and every day. And that's not a cup of coffee. It's not an extra pen. It's your common sense. That last bit about common sense was directed at what Stephen's defense would be, which is that he alleged his fingerprints were on her car window and his DNA under her fingernails because he had sold her drugs that night. The prosecution essentially said, well, that might explain the fingerprint, but it's a stretch to think that his DNA got beneath her fingernails from a simple handoff of drugs. And we'll go ahead and fast forward. He was found guilty. But I want to tell you about the interaction between himself and the detective when he met him at the prison to get that buckle swab, just to further cement in your minds the type of person that we are dealing with here. An interview was done with him on August 14, 2013, after items were retested from the crime scene, including fingerprints. Now remember, that detective started on this case in 2009. That's four years he has waited patiently for technology to catch up. A match came back to David Stevens, which led to that interview with Detective Anthony DeFrancisco, and at that time he was shown a photo of the victim, a crime scene photo. As Mr. Stevens looked at the images, the detective said, You don't know anything about that. 
Stevens replied, Can I keep that picture? Oh, you want to keep that picture? What for? The detective asked. That's money, Stevens replied. And that's the difference between me and a real investigator, because that would have been the moment that I chose violence. I would have been up over that table in a hot second. They would have had to physically pull me off of him. Instead, the detective calmly replied, No, unfortunately, her family probably wouldn't want that picture circulating around. Obviously, at trial, his attorney asked for that part of the transcript and audio interview with the detective to be redacted, given that it would have been highly prejudicial, and it was. I know I found the idea of him asking to keep an image from the crime scene more than disturbing, but the idea that he asked the detective, obviously knowing the answer, illustrates a level of cockiness that is hard to grapple with in another human being when you know what they've done to someone and they know what they've done to someone. Not just killed her, but left her in an open field, lying next to her car, in a horrifying display of violence. Stevens was already in prison for another offense from February of 1989 when this interview occurred, an offense which he committed six months after murdering Judith Doherty. He broke into a home very nearby this crime scene and also where he lived, and he was wielding a knife. He entered that home through the children's bedroom window, accosted his victim in a dressing room next to the bedroom, and then led her into an adjoining bedroom and raped her. During that rape, her little girl walked into the room, and that victim had to interrupt her own rape and send her daughter away. Stevens was sentenced to 70 years for those crimes and was due to be released from the Florida Department of Corrections in 2021, just one year after Miss Doherty's trial. I have no doubt that Detective DeFrancisco, in closing that case and ensuring David Stevens got life in prison, that detective saved someone else, maybe multiple women's lives, because perpetrators like David Stevens do not stop until they are stopped. So the only outstanding question for me is whether he murdered Barbara Robellin some ten years before that. James West's story about being shown her body in a ditch by David Stevens is compelling and that he knew about the location, which was remote, and enough details to be convincing. Now, whether he was also present is another question, one that I'm not sure we'll ever know the answer to, unless someone comes forward with information. But I will say this. If what he said is true, and that Cream Tornado Stevens drove him therein was the same vehicle parked in front of the 7-Eleven around 2 a.m., the night Barbara Robellon was abducted from the store, there were two people in that car, two black males, and that seems to suggest if it was him, there is likely someone else out there who was present. Because by 2.30, a half an hour later, customers were showing up, and Barbara Robellon was already gone. At his sentencing hearing, Judith Doherty's sister read a long victim impact statement, and I want to read a short excerpt that moved me when I read it, because it illustrates how one small thing can sometimes change everything. I would like to say that Judith was more than a victim, and more than a young woman who was striving to overcome the lure of drugs. She used them occasionally to remedy her painful emotions. She had love from a supportive family. And she had many friends, and she had dreams for her future. 
I appreciate this opportunity to speak for her and say something and share something about her life and her struggle and her story. Most murders, as I understand it, evolve from a senseless pattern of events. And Judith's murder appeared to evolve originally from a spiteful act by a co-worker, a female co-worker who withheld a message that Judith very much needed to receive. Her boyfriend, with whom she lived and loved, left that phone message for her with her co-worker when Judith was away from her desk on her lunch break. It was Friday on July 29, 1988, that the wheels of fate were set in motion to careen my sister toward her death. She never got that message from the boyfriend, and that really made all the difference in the world for the next 24 hours. Several of her other workmates were loyal friends. They later described the young woman who withheld the message as a very classic, mean girl. The opinion was that her mean-spiritedness, which she displayed on previous occasions, led to Judith's death. So this result demonstrates that seemingly small things really do matter. You see, she expected her boyfriend with whom she lived and loved to come home from work on Friday night. He'd left for work that morning, knowing where he was going. It was a distance from home. He did tile work. He was on a big project. It was behind schedule. He knew this. But he didn't know how long it would take. So when he did, that message was the message when he called her at work. He said, I won't be coming home tonight. This is my change in schedule. I might not see you again till Sunday because we're so far behind. Judith never knew this. So when he didn't return home and she didn't receive another phone call and didn't know that he had ever called, she became very nervous and worried because they had a small tiff on Thursday evening. And when he left on Friday morning, they hadn't mended their rift. So she was still upset. She was young and she was in her early 20s a female whose feelings were hurt about something. And it wasn't a big deal, I've heard the story, but she was still young and sensitive. So when he didn't come home on Friday, she worried. And then she went out on Saturday night because he still didn't come home. She even called my dad and she said, have you heard from him? Do you know where he is? And he said, no. And she said, well, he's not home. I'm gonna go out and find him. She was convinced that her boyfriend was out there with some other woman cheating on her. He was actually still with his workmates. He was actually still working on the job. And when they had finished that night, he had gone out with his boss and their mates. She knew nothing about it. Remember, cell phones did not exist then. The average person didn't have them. There was no cell phone in your pocket in 1988. So as it stood, Judith went out searching for him and she called my dad. He said, come home, stay with us for the night. We'll hear from him tomorrow. I am sure there's a reasonable explanation. But Judith got quite upset about it, and she went out looking for him. And she decided to go out to all the clubs that all the young people their age would frequent. And that, basically, spelled the end for my sister. I think that if we all recall, most people would recall making a regrettable decision when they were young. Perhaps it's stupid things. Choices that they wouldn't make as an adult. But if they were judged as having begged for their destruction, they might cringe to remember that when they were young, they exercised poor judgment. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and worse, they were alone and defenseless. I don't know anything, except that some crimes are so heinous that we have to leave forgiveness and the final judgment to God. The court will render a sentence on David Stevens today, but my children and I and my sister 
who recently died and our extended family have prayed for this day to come for over three decades. Thanks to the efforts of Tony DeFrancisco and the cooperative effort of the legal system, the day of reckoning has arrived. My sister Judith was 28 days short of her 24th birthday when David Stevens assaulted her in a heinous and perverted manner before he strangled her to death in the early morning hours of Saturday, July 31st, 1988. Judith was very strong. Maybe she thought she could handle herself, but she was no match for Mr. Stevens. This is the last in the series of Manatee County cases, for now anyway, and I've come out the other end with a couple observations. In Diane Love's case, I think law enforcement got it wrong. I think they chased the wrong person for years and they never even looked into the more obvious suspect, a suspect that was right there in their case file. In the Michelson's case, I don't have any easy answers. Was the former owner of their home ruled out? I don't know. If he was, there is truly no suspect in that case and that is baffling. And Harry Wolf, what about him? It doesn't appear that there was ever anywhere close to a suspect. But in that case, I would sure like law enforcement to compare any prints and ballistics, if possible, to the Kingfish Boat Ramp homicide case evidence. I certainly don't think it would hurt. Mr. Wolf's case out of all of these cases, in my opinion, is probably the only one that could be the same offender. As for Barbara Robellan, there's a good chance that David Stevens killed her too but there is not nearly enough evidence to make that determination. And to me, it's unsettling how unsettled her case and the rest of these cases really are. I ask that if you have any information on any of the cases that I have covered out of Manatee County this season, please contact the Manatee County Crime Stoppers at 866-634-TIPS. That is 866-634-TIPS. They also have a website, manateecrimestoppers.com. And as always, you can contact me at deckerjenny at gmail.com. That is D-E-C-K-E-R-J-E-N-I at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special shout out and a huge lump of gratitude to Blue Dot Session for their fantastic music this season. And thank you guys, all of you. I don't talk about it much, but I do get emails. I get quite a few emails from my listeners, uh, some of whom I have long-running conversations with. So don't be intimidated or uncomfortable to contact me. I enjoy hearing your thoughts, what you like, what you don't like. And I really appreciate you because I can tell that my listeners are interested, truly interested in these cases, in these victims, and you want resolution for the family. So thank you all so much for hanging in there with me this season. I know it was a little bit different than the the normal ones I cover, but I truly appreciate you. Thank you. Take care of yourselves. You'll hear me next season. <laughs>